Good morning, everybody. September has hit, hasn't it? Amazing. Well, let me just dive straight in here um, by asking you a very direct question. And it's this. Would anyone notice if you weren't here? Would anyone notice if you weren't here? If you decided to pack up and just move to the Hebrides, would anyone in the church notice? Or do you find yourself alone in a big church? And we don't want anybody to be in that position, but the reality is there probably are some. We don't want you to be in that position. So today, as Neil just said, we're, gonna, we're launching our new small groups for this term. Um, and I, I can't overemphasize the importance um, to the community of the church, to the, to the body of the church, as well as to you personally and to me, for our strengthening and our mutual strengthening, the importance of everybody, as far as possible, everybody being part of something, part of the life of the church, part of a small group. Hopefully the reason for that will become clear as I go on, but you know, that's not that small groups are the only means to community, of course, but they are an essential part of it. Um, now I'm going to be speaking from Hebrews chapter 10, so if you have a Bible and you can find Hebrews 10, that'd be great. I'm going to be looking at verses 19 to 25, and, and this section I'm looking at follows on from a lengthy explanation by the writer to the Hebrews of who Jesus is, of, of Jesus as our high priest, and the effectiveness, the completeness of his sacrifice. And, and this section starts with that word, therefore. You know, therefore, because of this, because of what I've just explained to you about Jesus and who he is, this then is how we should live. It's an exhortation to us as to how we should live in the light of what he's explained about Jesus. So verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since... We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so he just summarized everything he said. Because of that, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm not sure why the writer feels he needs to mention lettuce quite so much, but... um, I'm not a big fan of lettuce myself, but there's a lot of lettuce in that passage. Anyway, giant redwood trees. Um, You know what giant redwoods are? They're those really big trees. They grow, I think, mainly on the west coast of America. And they do grow really, as this picture will show, they can grow really rather rather large. Um, That is an enormous tree. I think the tallest tree in the world is a giant redwood. Now, you would expect the roots of a tree like that to go down pretty deep into the ground in order to hold this tree up, you know, for it to be stable. I was watching a program quite recently about, as some of you may have seen it, about what goes on under our feet, under the ground. And it was one about London, showing everything that happens under the ground in London. There's a lot. And it showed the shard, you know, that new massive tall building they've built. And it showed just how far down into the ground these concrete piles and foundations and everything like that had to go for this building to, to be able to stand and to be stable. You'd expect something similar 
of a giant redwood, these, these enormous trees. Actually, the root systems of a giant redwood are pretty shallow. Instead of going down deep, they go out wide and they intertwine with the roots of other giant redwoods. And so, in effect, what's happening is they hold each other up. They, they strengthen each other. There is a mutuality between them. But if one stands alone, if a giant redwood stands alone, it's very vulnerable to high winds or whatever, adverse weather conditions. It's very vulnerable to falling and dying. Now, I think that's quite a good picture of the community of the church or what it should be. Mutuality, strengthening of one another. And you can look at the size of this church and think, well, how... How does that work here? How can community really work here? You already have two meetings, so you've already separated one group of people from another, and you're talking about a third meeting on another site, so surely that's fragmentation rather than increasing community. Well, think about it like this. In the forest of giant redwoods, the tree over on this side of the forest, the roots of that tree are not directly touching the roots of the tree on the other side of the forest, but indirectly they are joined organically they are joined because this tree is intertwined with these trees, which is intertwined with these trees, etc., etc. And so they are joined, and what you have is this community that is strengthened by one another, by the presence of one another, by the mutual relationships that exist within it, these clusters of community that exist within the big community. I may not know you, I may have never spoken to you, But if you're part of this community here at King's, I am joined to you. And so indirectly, you are part of strengthening me as I am part of strengthening you. So to go back to my opening question, actually, if you're part of this community, if this is where God's called you to be, then yes, you would be missed if you weren't here. Absolutely, you would be. Do you know, apparently, baby redwoods, it's a bit of a lesson here, but baby redwoods, they they will often start to grow at the base of their parent tree and they'll latch on to the roots for nutrients which is a good picture of of discipleship and they'll often grow in circular clusters and that just reminds me of the series we did three years ago um, all about community called from rows to circles some of you might remember it Um, if you don't you can download off the website it's just a four-part series in fact I'd recommend you do because I think it was actually I think it's quite a good series actually Um, all about community and the aim of this series from rows to circles was to create a sense of movement from the row, and the row being the place where you just sit and observe as a consumer, and move into circles of community where you're a participator, where you grow in relationship with others. You grow alongside others. And that is a key thing here. It's so key. That's why when it says here in Hebrews, let's not give up meeting together, that's why it doesn't mean just come to church. It doesn't mean that, because you can come to church and just sit in a row and not be part of any circle. And there's a little phrase that appears twice in verses 24 and 25 and numerous times throughout the New Testament when referring to the gathering of God's people and it's one another. One another. Such a key phrase in the New Testament. And the New Testament teaches us that the community of the church is not just about being taught from the front or being pastored or counseled by a leader. No, it it teaches us that we are to be teaching one another. And we are to be counselling one another and encouraging one another and confessing our sins to one another. We grow in community with others, not just by hearing from the front. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. 
He works on us through each other. We need each other. Community is absolutely essential for our growth as a Christian and for the purposes of God to be fulfilled in our lives. Because you know what the purpose of God for your life is? It is for you to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And he will use, by in his sovereignty, he will use other people in that process of transformation. Other people are essential in that process. John Wesley would often say, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. So don't be alone in a crowd. Don't let that be the case. Don't let that happen. Don't be alone. If you are, if that's how you feel this morning, actually, I'm very alone here. Nobody would miss me if I, if I wasn't here. You know, my question at the beginning. Well, you may have to take some steps to change that. The responsibility actually primarily lies with you to start to change that, and there's a good opportunity to do that today as we talk about small groups later. Okay, so take the opportunity today. Don't be alone in a crowd. Genuine community is absolutely essential for growth. But then the question is, what does this community look like? What's the nature of, of community? Well, looking at verses 24 and 25, I think it gives a good indication of the nature of real community. The sort of community that flows from the presence of God, that flows out of being able to have access to the presence of God. And there are four key things which come out of there. First is considering, let us consider. Then spurring one another on. Third, encouraging. And fourth, love and good deeds. So first of all, considering. considering. Notice it doesn't just say spur one another on. It says let us consider how we may spur one another on. You know, that means think carefully about this. Pay attention to this. Prioritize this. Ponder this. Look closely at it. Notice people. Focus your attention on how you can consciously and deliberately help someone else in the community to grow. How we can look at the friends we have around us and really think about, how can I help this person? Do you have people in your life who are actively thinking about your well-being and how they can help you grow? And are you that person for someone else? How intentional are we about helping each other? How intentional are we about helping our friends and listening to each other, listening to each other's hopes and disappointments and sharing our sins and our weaknesses? How intentional are we at that? Now, at the risk of offending half the congregation, I would say that women are probably better at this than men. And some cultures are better at this than other cultures. Basically, if you're a British man, this is very uncomfortable. It's very, very uncomfortable, but actually there is no excuse because there is no distinction made here of gender. There's no distinction of culture. Let us consider. And then the next thing we're told to do is spur one another on. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I wonder what you think of when you think of spurring someone on. Maybe it's the kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know, come on, come on, I'm right there with you. Come on, you can do it. I'm cheering you on. Very positive, very encouraging But you know, it's a very interesting word that is used here for spur on. The Greek word is paroxysmos. And um, what that kind of has the meaning of is a strong emotion of irritation. So you could say, let us consider how we can irritate one another on towards love and good deeds. Now, some people have a ministry of irritation. um, And I'm probably one of them. That's not what this is talking about. It's not saying, look, let, if we can just really annoy each other, 
then we'll all produce love and good deeds. No, that's, that's not how it works. And of course, the translators know what they're doing. I'm not, I'm not saying this is wrong. The translators know what they're doing. They are Greek scholars. I am not. Okay? So they've translated it right. Spur one another on. But I do find it interesting that this same word that's used in a very positive sense here in Hebrews as spur one another on is used very differently. Same word used very differently in Acts 15.39 where it's translated as sharp disagreement. Same word. Spur one another on, sharp disagreement, sharply disagree, sharply confront. So while clearly here in Hebrews the writer has intended this in a positive sense, spur one another on motivate, incite, stimulate one another on towards love and good deeds. I do wonder whether he's used this word deliberately in order to indicate how sometimes that motivating and spurring on might need to happen on occasion. Because sometimes actually confrontation is needed. You know, I'm not talking about having a raging argument and a fist fight or anything like that. But sometimes challenge, challenge, confrontation is needed. Sharp disagreement is needed. It's no good cheering someone on if they're following a destructive path. In fact, that's distinctly unloving and unhelpful if we do that. Do you have people around you, surrounding you, who are allowed to sharply confront you? Who are allowed to challenge you, to disagree with you, because we need that. We need that. If we're going to grow towards love and good works, actually, we need to be challenged on some things. Or are you too touchy and defensive? And again, I hold my hands up. I I know I have been and I still am at times. Too touchy and defensive to allow anyone to hold you accountable, to disagree with you, to challenge you, when actually it's your good that they are seeking when actually they're doing it because they love you. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that every time someone confronts you about something, it's because they're seeking your good. There can be other motives. We need some wisdom here. But do you have people who know they have permission to confront you, to challenge you, in an appropriate way, if necessary? And are are you willing to do that? Are you prepared to do that for someone else? And if you don't know what an appropriate way is, please seek advice before confronting anyone about anything because this is not an excuse please don't use this what i'm saying now as an excuse so now i'm going to get i'm going to go and get everything off my chest to that person they've been annoying me for a long time so i'm you know don't do that okay it's not what that is about if you don't know how to confront someone appropriately about something please seek advice before you do okay odysseus in the odyssey in in greek mythology he was sailing past the island of the sirens and the sirens were these beautiful female creatures who Uh, would play music and sing uh, to enchant the passing sailors. And these sailors would be so uh, kind of driven mad by desire from this hearing their voices that they would steer towards the island and they would get shipwrecked on the rocks. And now Odysseus, he wanted to hear this music. He wanted to hear the beauty of this music, but without the shipwreck and and dying part. And so he, um, he instructed his sailors to tie him to the mast and to plug up their ears with beeswax, and to, on no account, were they to untie him. No matter how much he might beg, no matter how much he might shout at them, they were not to untie him, and they were to keep on rowing and keep on rowing until they were out of range. Now, you could question the wisdom of Odysseus in not plugging up his own ears at this point. However, what Odysseus is effectively doing here, what he's effectively saying to his friends is, give me what I need not what I want. 
because I will want to steer the ship towards that island. I need you to give me what I need in that situation, not what I want. We need people like that around us. We, we sometimes need to ask people to do that for us, to, to give us what we need and not what we want, to tell me what I need to hear, not always what I want to hear. Now, Odysseus was aware of the danger that lay ahead of him, but for us, it's often those flaws and sins that we are unaware of, that we are blind to, are they the ones that can shipwreck us? We need the perspective of other people to come into our lives. We absolutely need it. Are you willing to receive that? Are you willing to receive correction with humility? Or do you get offended and angry and say, the only person who has the right to decide what is right and wrong for me is me? You know, you're getting too personal, back off. How dare you tell me I'm wrong? You know, it's one of the highest values in our culture here in Britain, in the West. One of the highest values is self-determination, individualistic self-determination. I and I alone have the right to decide what is right and wrong for me. Well, you can have your individualistic freedom, or you can have a loving community, but you can't have both. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Consider, consider how we will spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And if you're going to confront someone about something, you need consideration and you need wisdom. Third, we are to encourage one another. And this does have that very positive sense of, you know, get alongside. Yeah, I'm supporting you. I'm cheering you on, uh, exhorting them, encouraging them on to greater things. Encourage one another. And you need both. You need both support. uh, So you need both confrontation and challenge. And you need encouragement. If all you ever get is confrontation, that's going to weigh you down. You need encouragement as well. But if all you ever get is encouragement, actually, it's probably not too healthy either. We need both if we're going to produce love and good works. So who have you encouraged recently? Some are very natural at this. Some have a spiritual gift of encouragement, and some find it more difficult. But you don't need a spiritual gift of encouragement to be able to encourage somebody. So who have you encouraged recently by phone, by text, by, by card, in person? You know, I've been, I've been so blessed. I've been really blessed by the encouragement I've received over many years from many different people in this church and correction at times. When it's from people I trust, when it's from people who I know love me and want the best for me. And for me, it's the thought that that person or these people, they have considered this. They've taken the time to encourage me or to spur me on. They've actually taken the time out to think about how I can do this and to actually do it. That's been a real blessing for me, and I'm sure it's many of your experience too. And that sort of love is the cornerstone of authentic Christian community. And Jesus himself said, you know, it's, this is how people will know that you are my disciples. This is, this is how people will know that you belong to me. It will be by your love for one another. It will be visible. It will be tangible. They will see it. It's a tremendously attractive thing. When Christian community works... When Christian community is strong and rooted in the love of Jesus, it's a tremendously attractive thing, and it stands in stark contrast to the individualistic self-determination of our culture. So we need, we need friends, and we need to be in a circle of friends, and, and genuine friends. I was reading this article the other day on the Gospel Coalition blog, and let me just read a bit of it. It says, we tend to use the word friend rather carelessly, don't we? 
Any person we have a few conversations with, work with, or like on Facebook, we call a friend. And this isn't necessarily bad, but I believe such frivolous usage of the word is making us miss the real meaning of biblical friendship. As J.R. Miller writes, to become another's friend in the true sense is to take the other into such close living fellowship that his life and ours are knit together. It's far more than a pleasant companionship in bright sunny hours. A genuine friendship is entirely unselfish. It seeks no benefit or good of its own. It does not love for what it may receive, but for what it may give. Its aim is not to be served, but to serve. Do you know how your friends are doing? How are their hearts, the spiritual condition of their souls? If we don't know how our friends are doing in their walks with God, or what hard times they're facing, or what sins they're fighting, then we have a superficial acquaintance and not a friendship. The reality is you'll probably only ever have two or three friends like that, like that description. But I think it's a good challenge. Well, I know it's a good challenge for me. Definitely a good challenge for me because I'm not very good at this. You know, I, it's the sort of community I want, but I find this really hard. I'm a British man. And for me, personally, my natural inclination, my natural introverted inclination is to retreat back into my own space, back into my own head, it's to retreat. I saw this sign recently, if you could just put that, that sign up and, uh, about introverts, and I thought it was, I found it quite amusing. Um, introverts will understand. Um, some of you out there really get this. <laughs> you really understand. Um, the thing is, that's not how it can be in the community of the church. That's not to say that we don't need our own space at times of course you know if I didn't I would go I would go insane I'd probably just start shouting at everybody and if, if I didn't ever get any space but we are to be in the lives of others and to have others in our lives and that includes our homes too and, and hospitality and that, that that whole area and I understand of course there are many barriers to this kind of community there are lots of barriers time is a big one or lack of time is a huge barrier to this kind of community fear is another huge one, fear. You know, what if, what if somebody got to know what I'm really like? What if they found out? I can't let anyone get too close in case they see behind the mask. Just consider, if, this, if that's you, just consider this for a minute. God knows you. He knows everything about you. Everything. He knows everything you have ever done. He knows every thought that goes through your mind, and yet he still loves you. And he still died for you. And you are surrounded by people who are in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We all wear masks, and we are all utterly dependent on the grace and the mercy of God. So don't fear. Don't fear that thing. That is a lie of the enemy. Don't fear that. There are lots of barriers to community, but that's why small groups are so important. That's why we put such an emphasis on small groups, because they provide a context. They provide a means in which you can... Meet people, you can make friends, and then some of those friends, because not everyone in your small group is going to be your best buddy, just doesn't work like that. You might have very good relationships with everyone in your group, you might not, but not everyone is going to be that real deep friend that, that, that I've been talking about here. But some of those people that you meet in a small group may, outside of the group, it's outside of the groups that this stuff really happens, they may become that kind of deep friendship that I've been talking about, with time and with effort and with investment. It doesn't happen just like that. There is a cost to it. 
But that's why we changed the way we do small groups two years ago now. So we're going into our third year of this. We can't really call it a new small group system anymore, really. But that's why we changed how we do it, because we wanted small groups to be as accessible as possible for everybody who comes, for every person in the church. And we want it to be very easy to sign up. And as you'll see later on, there's a massive variety of groups, different days, different times, different types of group. There really is something for everyone. So I just want to encourage you, really strongly encourage you to get signed up for something. Get signed up for something and then go to it. Be committed to it for this term and then just see what happens, see what God will do. So, considering, spurring one another on, encouraging one another, and then the outworking of all of that, when you have that kind of authentic Christian community going on, the outworking is love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. And you see it in the church. You see it here at King's. Love and good deeds. When people are moved by compassion to help someone practically. So we've had lots of babies recently, people giving birth. And what tends to happen when someone gives birth is that friends and small group will gather around and provide meals for, for that couple for that first week or the first couple of weeks, which are really difficult when you've got a new baby. You don't know what you're doing. The world's just turned upside down. It's done out of love. It's not out of duty. It's just done out of love. How can we help you in this time? Or we have a visiting team who will visit the sick and the housebound. These are volunteers, volunteers who will go and visit the sick and housebound. So they remain in community, and that's done out of love. Or when, when somebody gives a gift to somebody else who, who needs it or who is short of money, or you know, that's, that's done out of love. You know, we've been really blessed by that. I mean, just one specific example, just before we went on holiday... Somebody put £100 in the offering for us. I don't know who it was. Thank you to whoever it was, if you're here. But it was a real blessing because it meant that on holiday, there were a couple of things that we could do that we probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And it was just a blessing. It's love and good deeds. Whenever anyone serves in the church, we serve each other. You know, when people give out grapevines on the doors, when people move the chairs, when people clean the building, when people help in the children's work, all of that stuff that goes on, that's love and good deeds, helping each other out, practically serving each other. But this community also has an outworking, which is not just about helping each other in the church, it goes outside of the church as well. In helping the marginalized, serving the marginalized, those whom the world neglects and rejects. That's why we have a CAP centre. That's why we are involved with Wickham Homeless Connection, why we're involved with food banks. And, you know, a specific example, like when somebody sees the need to install a shower in the West End Hall so that the homeless, for the homeless shelter, so that those who are homeless can have a warm shower and just the dignity and value that a very simple thing like that puts on those people and someone sees that and he says, we'll pay for that. Let's, let's get that shower put in. We'll pay for that. That's love and good deeds. Tony Campolo is a, a well-known Christian speaker. There's been a little bit of controversy with him recently, but um, he tells a story of when he was at a conference in Hawaii, and he was wide awake at three in the morning and feeling hungry. And so he got up and he went to find something to eat. He went up this side street and found himself in a kind of seedy-looking diner, cafe kind of place, And uh, he's sitting there eating, and he overhears a conversation next to him between two women, who it turns out are two prostitutes. Um, One of them is called Agnes, and she's saying to her friend, it's my birthday tomorrow. And her friend is a bit mean to her, so it says, oh, well, well, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to throw you a party or do a cake? And Agnes says, well, there's no need to be like that. You know, I've never had a birthday party in my life, so 
I'm not expecting anything now. And then they left. And Tony turned to the owner of the diner, who was a guy called Harry. He's kind of a, an unshaven, greasy apron kind of guy. And um, he said, look, what, do you know those women? And Harry said, yeah, they're, they're in here every night. You know, actually all the prostitutes are around this time. And Tony said, look, should we throw her a party tomorrow night? Let's throw her a party. What do you think? And Harry said, if you, if, if you want. And Tony said, well, I'll, you know, I'll, let's decorate the place. I'll buy all the decorations. I'll buy cakes. I'll, you know, I'll, and, and if you can just invite those people who know Agnes, who come in here regularly, if you can invite them to be here so we can throw this party. And so they did it. They made all the preparations. Early hours of the next morning, the place has been decorated. The cake's there. Uh, people start coming in. You know, the place fills up with a whole load of prostitutes. So there's this Christian speaker in a diner full of prostitutes at three in the morning. And, um, and, then, and then Agnes comes in and everyone shouts, happy birthday. And she was just, she's just stunned and her legs buckle and she has to sit down. and She's just overwhelmed and she's crying. She's crying so much she can't blow out the candles on her cake. So Harry blew out the candles and then he handed her a knife to cut the cake. And... Um, Agnes is just looking at this cake and saying, do you mind if I, can I not cut it right now? Can we not eat it yet? I, I, I just want to look at it. Actually, can I take it home? I want to show it to my mother. Can I t- I'm just two, just, just two doors down. Can I take this cake home instead of cutting it right now? And, and Harry and Tony are like, of course, that's, that's fine. So she picks up the cake and leaves. Says, I'll be back soon, I'll be back soon. And it, this leaves a bit of an awkward silence because nobody quite knows what to do now. <laughs> and... Um, and so Tony took a kind of a bold step of saying, what do you say we pray for Agnes? And so he did. He prayed for her. He prayed for her life. He prayed for her salvation. He prayed for God to be good to her. And when he'd finished praying, Harry leaned over to him and said, you never told me you were a preacher. <laughs> he said, what sort of church do you belong to? And Tony answered, you know, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores. At 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said to him with a bit of hostility. This is a true story, by the way. Harry said to him with a bit of hostility in his face. No, you don't. No, you don't. There is no church like that. Because if there was, I'd join it. And what Harry saw there was love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. What kind of community produces the kind of love and good deeds that make the Harrys of this world want to come in. What's the secret of a community like that? Well, the secret, we see it in verses 19 to 22, where, where we see assurance. We're, it's all about assurance of your salvation. So since we have confidence, and it says, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. The writer is saying, because of who Jesus is, because of everything I've just explained about who Jesus is and what he's done, the completeness of his sacrifice, we can have absolute confidence. We can have absolute assurance of his love for us and the fact that we can now draw near to him, that we can access his presence. What the writer is saying is if you believe in the blood of Jesus, if you have asked the Father to accept you, not on the basis of your good deeds, but on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross through the blood of Jesus, then you have possession now, present tense, you have possession of that status that says you are forgiven, you are a child of God, and you can draw near to God. You can access the presence of God. That is the status that you now have. 
The assurance of salvation we see in verses 19 to 22 are the basis of the community that flows out of it in verses 23 to 25. Because you now know, if you have assurance, you now know you don't need to fear rejection because you have been accepted by the only person that counts. And so you can take the risk of friendship. You can take the risk of community. Now, if you don't know God's love, if you don't live with that assurance of his love for you, you will look for it elsewhere. It's human nature. You will look for it elsewhere, and you will hang out with people who make you feel good about yourself. And there'll be certain people you don't hang out with for the other reason. But you're not their friends for their sake, because all your relationships actually end up being about you and meeting your needs. But when you live with confidence and when you live with the assurance of the love of God for you personally, that transforms you and it transforms your relationships because you don't need a relationship to make you feel good about yourself because you already feel good about yourself because you can draw near to God and you have found full acceptance in him. He accepts you fully and you know it. You absolutely know it. You're in no doubt about it. Community is and always has been the natural outworking of a relationship with Jesus Christ. God is a relational God. He made us in his image. We are relational beings. He said it's not good for man to be alone. But then sin comes in. Sin corrupts. Sin separates. But Jesus reconciles. He reconciles. And so the natural outworking of that vertical relationship, that vertical reconciliation that we now have with God is a horizontal restoration with each other in relationship with each other, loving, healthy, supportive relationships, reconciliation, even for introverts, even for people like me. Now, how can you be sure that God has loved you like that? How can you be sure of this? How can you have assurance? The cross. The cross is your guarantee of this. Because Jesus was forsaken in your place. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken and betrayed by his friends, by his people. And in the end, finally, he was forsaken by the Father. He was utterly alone, totally alone, completely forsaken. Jesus lost his community in your place. He lost community so you can have it. He lost community so you can know with confidence, with assurance, that God will never, ever, ever forsake you. He will never forsake you. Draw near to God and draw near to each other. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And that's the problem, isn't it? It becomes a habit. When you back off, when you withdraw... When you think, I'm just going to give church a bit of a rest for a while, it never remains just for a while. It becomes a habit, and you end up distant and cut off and standing alone and vulnerable and easy fodder for the enemy. You know, the Bible describes our enemy, it describes Satan as being like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Well, which animal is it that the lion will attack and devour? It's the one that's separated from the pack. Don't do that. Don't, don't cut yourself off. Don't withdraw. Don't get into the habit of not meeting together. Draw near to God. Hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. And let us consider how we may spur one another on, how we may encourage one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us be the community that Jesus died to create. Amen.